have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Matthew chapter 20. Well, not really. Um, actually, we're going to get to 20, but we're going to be in 19 in verse number 23, chapter 19, verse number 23 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, um, we'd like for you to have a Bible so you can raise your hand and we'll give you a loaner Bible. Kevin will bring that to you. So anybody need a Bible, don't be shy. Raise your hand. Kevin will bring that over. And then um, if uh, you have it on your phone, I use the New King James Version uh, Bible if you want to follow along with me um, in that Matthew 19, verse 23. And uh, we just like, I think you'll grow more. I think the Lord can speak to you a little clearer if you have your Bible open in front of you and you're just a better Christian. You'll probably get to heaven better and faster if you bring a Bible to church. No, I'm just kidding. We live in a new day, right, where your Bible's on your phone. Um, so last week, we, we just finished up with the story that, that's recorded in all the Gospels, or three of the Gospels, about the rich young ruler. And we dissected last week the, the idea of, of this story of the rich young ruler and how his approach to salvation and life was, was off. And Jesus told him to go and sell everything you own and come and follow me. And how did the rich young ruler go away at the end of our story last week? Do we remember? He went away sad because he had a hard time being obedient to this, this call of God in his life because he had many possessions. And because his possessions were more near and dear to his heart than his walk or his faith in God, he, he couldn't let go because of whatever you want to label it, his greed, his, his decision to not let go of these things. And, and sometimes when you read that verse in the Bible where it says to go and sell everything that you own and come and follow me, you believe that, um, oh no, am I supposed to do that? But that's not a universal call of God for all of us. That was a, an issue with the rich young ruler that, that Jesus identified in his heart that was hanging him up in his walk with God. And, and in all of our lives, what we talked about last week is that there, there can be those things in our own lives that, that are those hangups. And we want to identify those things. We want to ask God to help us identify. And maybe we judge the rich young ruler and say, you know, you fool. You, you wouldn't give up those things to inherit eternity in heaven. And, and, and yet we have the same struggle and we judge him, but ours is no different. It's just maybe something else. And maybe it's not greed. Maybe it's lust or maybe it's something else in our lives. And, and, and Paul tells us in Hebrews, he says, you know, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, the Old Testament, the, the, the New Testament, the stories that God has given us, since we have such a cloud of, of witnesses and testimonies, Paul says, let us lay aside, therefore, every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run our race with endurance, the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy Endured the cross, despising the shame. And, and so that, that there's something, some are weights. And Paul describes some things in our lives as weights. And, 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 you know, with sin, without getting into this topic too much, sin is not always black and white. You know, sin for some people is sin in your life. And for another believer in Jesus, it's not sin. There's other areas of sin that, that are black and white. The ones that I use because they're just the easiest is, is the Bible says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. So we don't have to argue whether that's legal for one Christian or not. If you're getting drunk, that's sin. The Bible says, do not have any sex outside of marriage. That's black and white. There's no gray area there. That's a sin. But then why does Paul say to lay aside every weight and the sins which so easily ensnare us? He makes two distinctions, right? One is a, a sin, black and white. The Bible has lists of things in your life. That, that, that are things that are in life that, that God sees as black and white sin, and we're all guilty if we do them. And then Paul adds a category of weights. Now, if you, you know, one of my favorite athletes on the planet is, is an athlete by the name of Usain Bolt. Anybody know Usain Bolt? He's so impressive. He's an Olympic sprinter in the 100 meter, and he's the fastest man on planet Earth. Every time he runs, he breaks his previous world record that he set the last time he ran. He's so incredible. But you don't see Usain Bolt coming out um, with, with weights on his ankles and on his waist and on his wrists as he's in the starting blocks getting ready to run his race, right? You guys aren't sure. Do you see Usain Bolt with weights on his ankles and his wrists and his weights when he comes out to run? Why not? Because he wouldn't run as fast. He wouldn't run as well. And Paul says in your run of, of, of 
Christ in your run, in your walk with the Lord, identify what those weights and those sins are in your life that are so besetting and lay them aside. Take them off. Deal with them in your life. Those those are the things that relationally will keep you from being intimate and close with God. And church and Sunday mornings is a time, it's a place where where we we can ask God to identify those things. And maybe you know, maybe right now as I'm talking about weights and sins in your life, God is speaking to you about something that he wants to call from your life. He wants to, to take from your life. He wants to let you, but, you, but he, can't, he can't forcibly take it from you. You have to do what? You have to give it up. You have to let it go. And definitely in the Christian life, there are weights and sins. And we want to be on our guard as Christians from one of, one of the ugliest things that Christians are guilty of. And to some degree, we are guilty. And it gives God a black eye. And it makes people not want to come to Christ. And that is legalism. And as Christians, we don't want to be legalistic. You know, when Paul is talking about um, liberty in the book of Romans, he describes people that are, that are legalistic in their walk. And he calls them the weaker brothers. You would think because they're so righteous and holy and legalistic and they follow all the rules and regulations that they would be the ones God would be more pleased with. But Paul says in dealing with these two groups, those that exercise liberty in Christ and those that are self-righteous and legalistic, he said these are the weaker brothers. And so in that area of, of, of Christian living where we have identifiable sins that, that are sin on you and sin on me because the Bible tells us so. But in the areas where the Bible doesn't specifically say then those are categories that, that Paul tells us, the Bible tells us, are weights. And, and if you have something that in your life is a weight, for example, um, you know, in my life, there was a season where watching, and this is crazy, just don't, don't laugh at me, but it just, it happened. Um, watching the TV show Big Brother was sin for me. You're like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? But I got convicted. I was watching it and I was into it. And I didn't, and I, I just, and God just told me, hey, stop watching that trash. Now, I would never, 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 never come to your house when you're watching Big Brother and tell you, hey, that's trash. If you're a good Christian, you should never watch that stuff. I would never say that to you. You could watch Big Brother all you want until, until when? Until God speaks to your heart and says, stop watching it. And if God speaks to your heart and says, hey, that's trash in your life, stop watching it. Now you've just moved into the category that big brother for you is a weight. But you have liberty in Christ. And we just have to be careful in the areas that God has given us as as things that are personal convictions. If we can't go to another brother and show him in the Bible where it says, hey, don't don't do these things. Then we don't want to put those weights on people because listen, you make a terrible Holy Spirit. But God's spirit makes an amazing Holy Spirit and he can come in love. I didn't feel beat up that day. I didn't feel God condemning me the day that I just felt conviction and God just spoke to me about something stupid. Just, hey, stop watching that trash. I just felt like, okay, cool. I'm not supposed to watch that. So I turned it over to like Survivor Island or something, you know, some more. <laughs> I don't know what the difference is, but I, but yeah, I, just, I just felt a conviction in that area. And I felt, and there's other things. And that's just one example. But just be obedient to those things where God begins to speak to you because they're relational, right? They're things that God wants to create intimacy with you. And they're things that God has identified in your life that are affecting his intimacy with you. You know, do you want to have things that, that are in the way of your relationship with God? Yes or no? No, we don't. So, so we want to lay those things aside. So that, that was a long um, explanation of unpacking last week's sermon. We haven't even got to this week's yet. Last week's sermon was in the life of the rich young ruler, God identified a weight or a sin in his life that was besetting and was causing him to to not walk clearly with the the Lord and God called it out of him And, 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 and in your life. Now, after that happened, now we have to catch this section in context. Now, I want you to understand something about the Bible. The, the words, the, 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 the chapters, the verses The the things that are in there are inspired by God. Holy men wrote as they were inspired by God, the Bible says. The Bible says that the word of God is good for instruction and righteousness, that it's infallible, that it is the word of God. In the Old Testament, we just got back from Israel, a few of us, 
And one of the things is that, that sometimes we were in the old city in the Jewish quarter and we were talking to some of the rabbis and they were quoting verses out of the Old Testament. And one of the rabbis said to me, he read the verse, a verse we know well, it's in Exodus, that, that the Lord is, is slow to anger, gracious, merciful, abounding in mercy to generation to generation. He was reading that verse and he said, in your English Bible, I don't know which chapter and verse that is. We don't have in our Hebrew Bible chapter and verse breakdowns. We just have the book of Exodus. So the, the chapters and verses in your Bible, Old and New Testament, they were added later and, and they did a pretty good job, and they, but, but they weren't necessarily inspired, every one of them, by the perfect break by the Holy Spirit. So sometimes as you're reading the Bible, the, the same story is, is happening. Even though last week was 19, Matthew, this week's 20, what's happening right here between 19 and 20, it's just one progression. It just keeps going. But there is a chapter break here. But in order, so in order to get 20, you have to get um, the context of what Jesus is talking about. I want everyone to say with me, say the word context. Okay, do you know what that means when you study the Bible? When you read the Bible? So if you take the text out of con, what are you left with? You have context and you take the text out, what are you left with? Con. So it's a con. And the Bible can act as a very big and a very easy and a very good con, and it does, and it has unfortunately throughout all of human history. Even the devil took the text out of context, and he quoted scriptures to Jesus in order to get Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple and said, look, it says right here in the Bible that God will protect you if you throw yourself down. So here I'm reading, he read it. The devil read the Psalms to Jesus out of context and said, see what it means? It means commit suicide. Is that what it means? No. In one place in the Bible, it says that Judas went and hung himself. In another place in the Bible, it says, go and do likewise. Do those two verses go together? No, because they're, they're out of context. So um, there's another, th- another way you can, you can kind of remember context when you're reading the Bible, when you're studying the Bible. So if somebody gives you a verse out of the Bible and they, they says, this is what this v- Bible verse means. And they just quote to you the verse or half the verse. You, you, and you're not really sure, you can go back and you can do what we call 20-20 vision. Everybody wants 20-20 vision, right? That's where you see well. And you read 20 verses before and 20 verses after. And you can catch context that way. And, and there's a lot less chance that you're going to get it out of context or get the meaning of the verse skewed or changed when you keep it in context. So in order to get to chapter 20, we got, we got to catch the context of what Jesus is saying. So um, in response to the rich young ruler, let's look at verse number 23. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Somebody say hard. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. Somebody say greatly astonished. Saying, who then can be saved? So Jesus here says that a rich man cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Are there any rich men in here who just heard that they were going to hell? Because you're rich and that means you now cannot go to heaven? So in the, in the context or in the verse, what Jesus is saying here is that uh, someone who trusts in riches cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who trusts in their riches to go to heaven. So if you place your trust not in God, but in the things that God has provided in your life, Jesus is saying for you, it's hard. It's as hard as a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, some some commentators, you read this, and they say that the eye of a needle was a gate in the old city of Jerusalem. And it was a small gate. It was a man gate. And at night when they closed the big gates, if you had to come through the gate into the old city and, and, and it was late after hours, you could go through the, 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 <clears throat> the eye of the needle gate and only one man could get through it. And, and if you take a camel and you take all of his stuff off and you get him down on all fours and you pull from one side as he's crutched down and you push from the other side that you can get a camel through the eye of a needle. The eye of the needle, and that's what Jesus was talking about. But then in, in, in Luke's gospel, when he tells the story, he actually uses the word needle that is a sewing needle. 
So Jesus wasn't saying that the needle gate in the old city, he was literally talking about a sewing needle and the eye of a sewing needle. Any of you guys have to thread the eye of a sewing needle? How many of you guys now have to have your grandkids do it or your kids do it or somebody else, you know? I always prided myself on having good eyes, and I did. When I was a kid, you know, I'd be driving on the freeway, and, and I was always the first one. There'd be a, a road sign, you know, how far ahead. Everybody in the car would be trying to read what it says, and I was always the first one in the car that could make it out. And then I go to the eye doctor, and I get an eye test, and my vision is 2015. So I got great vision my whole life growing up. And then um, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. And I, so finally, I don't know, last year I go to the eye doctor and I end up with these. Never had, they're just little readers, but I'm having a hard time seeing my Bible. And the words are kind of blurry now when I look down. And so I'm asking him, Doc, what's wrong? You know, I told him about my story about having great vision and like, what's wrong with me? And he said, uh, usually happens to men about 40. <laughs> He said, uh, nothing's wrong with you. Just pretty typical. You're getting old and your eyes don't work. Like I said, come on, I used to have good eyes. And he's like, not anymore. They're not bad, but they're, they're still not great. But the eye of a needle, you know, I heard somebody else say that you could actually get the camel through the eye of a needle. You just have to, you know, blend it really fine. And eventually you could put it through there. But Jesus's point again for you and I is that you, you cannot trust in, and Jesus put it another way. Do you guys remember? Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and mammon. What is mammon? Mammon is the God of money, the the love of money. And Jesus said, you can't have a love for money and a love of God because they're both masters in your life. Your money can be your master. Is that not true? Have you not experienced and seen that in this world? That that, that sometimes acquiring lots of money and those that, that, that have been successful in acquiring lots of money, the danger is you get to the point where you no longer possess that money, but that money possesses you because what you have to do to keep it what you have to do to protect it, what you, the way it, cre- it causes you to live and the decisions you have to make to keep that money. And so Jesus said that you can, can't serve both. And here he says to the disciples that, um, that, you, you, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are greatly like twisted by this, right? It says they were greatly astonished in verse 25. Now, why is that? Because, because of what? Because of their typical religious views. And what does religion say? What does man's religion say all over the world? That if you're happy, healthy, wealthy, that God has blessed you. If you're happy, healthy, wealthy, then you've found favor in God's eyes. So how can somebody who's happy, healthy, and wealthy, a rich man, um, not enter the kingdom of heaven? The disciples, because of their religious views of God's blessing equals um, good health and riches, and is that true? Or do good things ha- or do bad things happen to good people? Bad things happen to good people. Good people live in poverty by the will of God. And if their eyes are on God, they're happy. Mother Teresa, by choice, lived a life of poverty her whole life and lived one of the most godly lives, an example of, of, of godliness that, that I've seen and ever experienced in my lifetime. Mother Teresa had an amazing, amazing, amazing testimony and relationship with God. She was a prayer warrior. She gave of herself and she chose to live in poverty and, 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 and showed us that, you know, her relationship with God was where the value was. And the Bible says that a good name and a relationship with God is, is greater to be desired than great riches. Now, God's not against wealth. And I don't want to preach that. I don't want that message to come across. You know, the Bible is full of, of godly, godly people who are very wealthy. Can you guys think of any? Nicodemus was a man in John chapter 3 that was a wealthy, wealthy individual. Jesus had lots of wealthy individuals all around him in Jesus' life. The man that, that loaned him his tomb was a wealthy individual. The person whose garden where Jesus sweat great drops of blood was a private garden on the, on the Mount of Olives. We call commonly the Garden of Gethsemane was a, was a privately owned garden that Jesus often withdrew to. A rich man, a friend of Jesus. The donkey that Jesus rode on in the triumphal entry was a borrowed donkey from a rich fellow that Jesus knew in Jerusalem. Abraham, Job, Solomon, King David, at their, at their time were the absolute richest people on planet Earth in their day, and they're great godly men. They were the Bill Gates or the whoever this new guru is. There's a new guru who huh, knocked Bill Gates off a long time ago. The guy that owns Amazon, what's his name? What's his name? Bezos. Bezos. He's, the, he, he's the new uh, guru, richest man in the world. Um, so it's not about necessarily riches. 
The issue is, is those that trust in their riches. And then um, Jesus looked at them in verse 26, and he said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all to follow you. Therefore, what shall we have? So good old Peter, leave it to good old Peter. He's picking this up in context, and he says to Jesus, Well, what about us? What do we get? You remember when Jesus, in John chapter 20, um, Jesus is there. He's cooking the fish on the shore. Peter jumps out of the boat. He comes over. And then Peter says to, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me three times? And then, and then Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die, that he's going to be crucified. And then Peter, he looks at Jesus and he says, well, what about him? What about John? What's going to happen to him? Is it, is it fair? I'm going to die. I'm going to die on the crew. But what about him? And that's human nature is that what, what happens to us, we're always concerned about, well, what about him? What about them? And it's a disease. It, it, it's, a, it's a worry about and focus on whether life is fair the way that God has dealt it to you based on how God has dealt it to somebody else. But good old Peter, who was constantly arguing about who was the greatest and what about everybody else, he hears the context of, of this rich young ruler having to sell everything. And he says, well, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get? Because he told the rich young ruler, leave everything and follow me. And Peter's thinking about it for a minute. Jesus is preaching about the rich man. And Peter says, well, shoot, we left everything. We're following you. Hey, Jesus, what do we get? And I'm glad he asked. And Jesus looked at him and he said with, I'm sorry. um, And Jesus said to them, verse 28, assuredly, I say to you that in the resurrection, I'm sorry, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or wives, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. In the other gospel, this same verse is recorded, that you'll receive a hundredfold in this life and the next. And so that God promises for those that leave father, mother, brother, sister, for my name's sake and follow him, that God's going to reward you and you're going to be blessed. And so basically Jesus's answer to Peter is, hey, Peter, I'm going to take care of you. Not only are you going to be blessed in this life, but you're going to receive eternal life and be blessed throughout all of eternity. You know, one of the the biggest battles, listen, that we have, church, in in telling our young people and and trying to encourage our young people to walk with Jesus is this idea, and and maybe even for some adults. And I know for me as a teenager, 13 years old, never gone to church, and my neighbors invite me to church, and I'm exposed to Jesus for the first time. And they ask me if I want to ask Jesus in my heart and become a Christian. And I believe it's true, and I do, but I'm afraid that if I do that and I commit and give my life to Jesus, there'll be no more fun. That I'll have to, you know, go live in a grass hut in Africa and sleep in the mud to tell people about Jesus. And God will make my life miserable if I surrender and give my heart to God. And young people struggle with this because Satan is constantly telling them that, 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 that God is no fun. That God is not fair. And here we have this promise, again, hundreds of them in the New Testament, where Jesus promises for those that follow him that he'll give you life and that abundantly. And here, another promise, another layer of promise that you can follow God and God will take much better care of you than you will take care of yourself. God will take much better care of you than the devil will, I promise. And, and so, you know, that God doesn't take your freedoms away. He gives you freedoms. God doesn't take your joy away. He gives you joy. I counseled with a young man recently who was making an ungodly decision in his life. And I encouraged him in, in, in thinking about it and, 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 and making a sacrifice and doing what God's word said instead of making a, a decision outside of God's will. And, and he made the wrong decision. And a year and a half later, he came back and he asked me to pray for him. And he had got his life right and got rid of that decision. I said, what happened? Why, why, did, you, why did you get right and come back? And now, now I want to do it the way God tells you to do it. And he said, because for a year and a half, I've had no joy in my life. And I said, well, why did you leave a year and a half ago? He said, to find joy. And that's the reality. We think we want to be disobedient to the things of God because it's going to bring joy. It's going to bring happiness. And a year and a half later, we find that we we, we lost out on joy for a year and a half. And now we want to get right because we're struggling with joy. And it's easier just to do things God's way the first time, right? And so um, 
So, so Jesus here is promising that God's going to give us life. And then he says in verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Listen, as a pastor, as a minister, as a follower of Christ, we are called to something that's called servanthood leadership. Everybody say servanthood. You guys remember, how many of you guys, raise your hands, just a few of you. How many of you were still here when Gail Irwin came and preached here a couple years ago, okay? Gail Irwin has spent 35 years traveling the nation preaching four messages, the same four messages, and God has absolutely used them, the greatest four messages you'll ever hear in your life. Powerful, 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 powerful preacher. And he came here and he shared with us, and his entire ministry, he's been teaching servanthood across the nation. And he has a bumper sticker and a, and a mantra and a saying that goes along with his ministry that he's developed over 35 years. And God has brought it down to one word in his life. You guys remember what his one word was? Others. Others. For that same reason. The word pastor or minister or deacon, the root of that word means servant. So, so as a pastor, my, my job is to serve you know, I remember um, we, we were working with a church in 29 Palms, and the pastor was, was, was doing some work with us, and so um, he, actually, we were out at his place in 29 Palms, and um, some of our pastors working with their church, and the pastor pulled up, and, and I, I'm not judging him, you guys, I'll just tell you the story, um, and he had this reserved parking space right in the front, right next to the entry to the church, and when he pulled up, the, the deacons met him at the, at the car. They opened his door for him. They, he popped the trunk. They went in and got his bag and his things that he needed. And he got out and walked in. And they all carried his stuff and followed him into the church. Great. He's got it like that. But, you know, I think that misses the heart and the idea of what Jesus taught us. Jesus, the pastor, the minister, he's, he's not there to be served. He's there to serve. Jesus, in John chapter 13, he girded himself as a servant and he washed the disciples' feet as an example. And he said, if I, your Lord, washed your feet, you should wash others' feet. Now, I'm not literally going to wash your dirty feet. That's, that, that, I mean, we don't live in a day. Yeah, we, we could, right? We could do a foot washing ceremony, but they're kind of funky. I've done them before. But it was something practical in Jesus' day because they wore sandals and they walked on, on roads of dirt. Dust. And when you entered a house, it was common in every house you entered for a dinner party. Your feet were dirty and you didn't wear shoes in the house. So you, you washed your feet at the door. It was just very common practice. And the servants always did it. But that day Jesus did it. And he did it as an example for us to, to, be, servant, to be servant leaders. In verse 28, look at Matthew 20, 28 real quick. Just flip over just right there where it should be on the same page. And Jesus said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, then you will find it. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to be what? Least or the servant of all. You know, we do potlucks at the church every once in a while. And, and just as and it's just a kind of a fun thing I do. It doesn't really mean nothing. It doesn't make me any better. But just as an example, I always eat dead last. Sometimes there's no food left. And other times I can load my plate to the top because everybody's already eaten and I don't have any guilt taking all the food that's left. But it's just a little thing to try to, you know, I try to, sometimes I'm unloading, but I try to park in the back here in the parking lot because leave the better spaces for the guests and for those that are there. And I'm here for multiple services and just little things. But, you know, the idea that, that, that not only as the, the leadership is called and our style of leadership is servant leadership, that my job as the pastor of the church is to serve the congregation, is that as Christians, your job as well is to serve one another. Your job is to love and put others first. And so Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. And then Jesus is going to go and he's going to tell a story of the wages of grace. Everybody say wages of grace and of God's amazing grace. And now it fits in context. Now, I'll, I'll try to quickly unpack this. Peter's question, what about us? What do we get? Part of it was honest and part of it had a little bad attitude about it, right? Have you guys ever had a bad attitude when somebody in your circle in your life got really blessed? You see, your, you see somebody with a new car, you ever say out loud to them? And if you're this person, you're going to repent right now and it'll be the last time because I'm going to help you as your pastor. You ever say to somebody, must be nice. Okay, if that's you, don't tell me because I'll judge you. 
just repent and, and don't do it no more because it's not biblical, it's not Christian, and it's not what God wants from our hearts. And it's, it's an attitude that God's going to deal with right now. Jesus said to rejoice with those who rejoice. Jesus said to mourn with those who mourn. And it's a real test when somebody gets a blessing around you that you think you deserve. Can you rejoice with, with the person who's rejoicing? Or are you mad because you didn't get the blessing? Because you didn't get the raise? Because you didn't get the accolade? We had 15 guys here from California recently. And, and one of them, and I believe the Holy Spirit led it, we bought him as a church a gift, a nice gift. And it was $800. That nice. And, and, and in, the, in the big scope of things, right, it, you know, 15 guys working 12 hours a day, the labor costs on that would have been $70,000. And so for $800, we thought it would be nice to do something really nice for one of these guys because we felt the Spirit led us. And somebody else said, Pastor Christie said, you know, if you, if you do that, the other guys, they're going to feel bad, and, which I get it. And I said, well, good. This is a lesson on rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. And this is a heart check for everybody who's here. And we're going to do it. And I'm going to make it grand. And I hope they get upset. Because if they do, it'll show a condition of their heart they got to deal with. Because, you know, again, if, if, if they, so we presented this person a gift and people were grateful. And if someone in their heart said, oh, it must be nice. That's their problem. I wasn't, I wasn't going to make a decision based on the condition, the rotten condition of somebody else's heart. We were going to bless somebody who deserved to be blessed. And, and Jesus, you know, here again, he doesn't want, this is what he's dealing with right here, you guys, is that heart. So this is what happens here. And, and we see it. We see it in the prodigal son. We'll talk about that in a minute. No. We got 10 minutes left, you guys, and we'll be done in 10 minutes. It says, um, for the kingdom of heaven, listen in verse 20, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he said to them, and he sent them in his, in his vineyard, and he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go out into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. Remember that, whatever is right. Okay? In verse 2, he agreed with the laborers for how much? In verse 2, he agreed with those laborers for how much? And then in verse 4, he went back out later about the third hour. So the day the Jewish, the way the Jewish day works is, the, is 6 o'clock in the morning is the first hour. We, we usually count our days, um, you know, midnight to midnight. They don't count their days midnight to midnight. Their days go from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And, and so 6 a.m. is the first hour. So three, th- the third hour is 9 o'clock. The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is 3 o'clock. The 11th hour in our story is 5 o'clock when the quitting day was 6. And so he goes back out. And this would have been common in Jesus' day. It would have been like the, um, like kind of like the Home Depot laborers or if you need to pick up a day laborer. During the Depression, the men would gather around the um, factories and the factory um, boss would come out and he would pick the men that he needed for the day and everybody else would get sent home and these day laborers. And so in Jesus' day, this was a practical story. And the way that you, you harvest grapes, it has to be done very quickly. From the time they're ready to the time it's over, it, it's a process that they want to get done fast. So the guy goes out into the um, Home Depot and he picks some laborers at 6 in the morning. And he says to them, you work in the field 12-hour day from 6 in the morning to 6 at night. And, and the price is a denarius. A denarius in, in Jesus' day was, was a, a, a day's labor. And, and it was a, a generous wage. The average person didn't make a denarius. A Roman soldier in Jesus' day was paid one denarius a day. And, that, and he made good money in his day. So a denarius was a, was a generous day's wage for a laborer. And the morning crew agreed and said, okay, yeah, that's, that's a great deal. And then he goes back. He decides he needs more laborers. He goes back at 9 o'clock. And the 9 o'clock crew, he says, just go into the field. And at the end of the day, we'll settle up for what's fair. Now, if you're in the nine o'clock crew, you have to, you have to be able to trust the guy that's hiring you. Because if you don't trust the guy and he's a creep or a criminal and, and you worked all day and you haven't agreed on what the price is, at the end of the day, he, he could pay you something that's, that's very under what you deserve. But, but these people were happy to get the work. And so they went and, and the, the deal that he made with them was just go into the field and at the end of the day, I'll pay you. And again, he went out, verse 5, about the sixth hour, and again the ninth hour, and did likewise. 
And then again in verse 6, at the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because we're lazy and fat and we wanted to play video games and not work. No, that's not what they said. They said, because we have, haven't had opportunity. Because nobody has hired us. But where were these men that he picked up in the 11th hour? They were still in the front of the Home Depot hoping to get work. And it was 5 o'clock and the workday ended at 6. So they were, they were diligent. They, they were in the place where they needed to be for something to happen. One of the reasons why God says that you should come to church on a regular basis, the local church, the way God designed it for us as Christians to have fellowship and grow and be healthy. And he said, in order to be healthy, that, that, you, that do not forsake the gathering of the brethren. And, and you come because this is the place oftentimes where God speaks to you and God ministers to you. And you come to the house of God to meet with God. And so they're there at five o'clock. Now, how many of them do you think at two o'clock? At one o'clock said, well, I, you know, I got up early. I came, I've sat out here four or five hours. Nobody's hired me. So I'm going home. I'm going to go take a nap. And I'm sure at two o'clock and three o'clock and four o'clock, there were those that day in the workplace who, who, who left, but some diligent, hardworking individuals decided whatever reason that they were going to wait all the way until six o'clock. And at five o'clock, this guy comes back and he says, there's only an hour left but go work in the field, and at the end of the day, I'll pay you what's fair. And then in verse 8, it says, So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first, those that came at 5 o'clock. And when those who were hired about the 11th hour or 5 o'clock and only worked an hour, they each received a denarius, a day's wage. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the heat of the day. So maybe these guys were getting their hopes up. Maybe when they saw him bring the workers in that only showed up and worked an hour and paid them a denarius, they were going, ooh, he, he paid them a denarius an hour? I'm going to make 12 denarius. I'm going to make 12 days worth of work today. And then he brought those that were hired at 3 o'clock and he gave them a denarius. And then he brought those that were hired at noon and he gave them a denarius. And now maybe they're thinking, okay, maybe not 12, but definitely going to get more than what they got. I've been here all day. And then he brought those in that were hired at 9 o'clock and he gave them a denarius. And then he brought the original crew that he agreed with the denarius for, and he gave them a denarius. And what did they do? They got a bad attitude. And they said, um, we've been here all day laboring in the hot sun. And you paid the guys that have been here an hour the same as you paid us that have been here 12 hours. You're not right. Well, contraire, mon frere. What did, what did the landowner say? He says, um, but he answered them in verse 13 and said to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. Take your money and get out of here. I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? I want us all to say that together. Is your eye evil because I am good? Again, is your eye evil because I am good? One more time. Is your eye evil because I am good? Did he do the, the crew that came in at 6 o'clock? Did the landowner do him wrong? Did he do him dirty? Did he agree with them for a denarius, for a, a, a generous wage for a day's labor? Did he agree with them for a denarius? Did he pay them a denarius? So he did nothing wrong. And the fact that he wanted to be generous with the rest and give them something they didn't deserve, give them and show them the grace of God, then that was his right and he could do that. And it's a picture and it's a story to Peter and his heart condition that was a little bit soured when Jesus said, when Peter said to Jesus after the rich young ruler left, well, what about us? And Jesus first encouraged Peter and told him the truth that those that follow him would be blessed, Peter. But he also sensed in Peter that attitude that I talked about. And then he gives this parable to check each one of our hearts. And here's the truth about God. 
God's grace is absolutely amazing. It's undescribable. Grace means what? God's riches at Christ's expense. Undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor. Undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. Stop trying to earn the grace of God. Stop trying to live your lives in ways that you're worthy of the Lord. Yes, let me tell you something about your worthiness. You're not worthy. You'll never be worthy. But I'll tell you who is worthy. Jesus is worthy. I'll tell you who is righteous. Jesus is righteous. And I'll tell you something else amazing about our God. Just for fun, he takes his righteousness and he gives it to you. Just for free. (laughs) You can have it, all yours. And guess what? Then when the Father in heaven looks at you, he doesn't see. You know what he sees? He sees his son. He sees Jesus. And the father happens to be a little fond of Jesus. He happens to like his son. And so when he sees you, guess what? He likes you. He loves you. His grace is amazing in your life. But not because you deserve it. Not because you're great. Not because you're cool. Not because you tithe. Not because you go to church. Not because you stay dressed up on Sundays and don't fancy restaurants on the wrong Sabbath. None of those things. Because of his amazing grace. And God's grace is the same. You know, you know the, the, the guy who worked an hour got the same reward as the guy who, who worked 12 hours in the hot sun. You realize the thief on the cross was a rotten person all of his life? If he was alive today, most of us would agree that he deserved capital punishment. That he was that bad of an individual that the state would be justified in giving him the capital um, punishment. He was, being, he was being put to death for his crimes and he was a creep. And he was a criminal of criminals. He was a bad, bad, bad person by society standards. There was nothing good in him until he repented on his deathbed on the cross, and what happened? Guess what heaven that guy goes to? Same one you're going to. Guess what streets of gold he gets to walk on? The same ones you get to walk on. Same heaven, same same amazing grace of God because he put his faith in God. You know, I talked to an individual recently and I was telling him about the amazing grace of God and, and I was unpacking the whole story. I was telling him about the thief on the cross and I always use that story to give an example of God's amazing grace, you know? And he said, well then, what you're saying is I can just live my whole life however I want and on my deathbed get saved because God's amazing grace, right? And I couldn't argue with him. It was the truth. Sure. Yeah, I I guess, you know. But I I think in this parable, some people might try to do that as well and say that those that, that came in last but, you know, I don't, I don't want us to use God's grace. You know, Paul warns us about taking advantage of the grace of God. You know, what I told the guy was, well, yeah, 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 the logic is true. You can, you can do that. You know, the problem is, is, is every time that you sin, God, God puts a hot iron or, or, or I don't know if God is necessarily responsible for it, but the result of sin in your life, the Bible says, is a hot iron searing your heart. And every time you sin is another pass of a hot iron over your heart, which makes your heart hard. And if you get to a point in life where you, that hot iron has passed over your heart so many times and God's spirit has called you so many times and drawn you and given you opportunity and you've rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected him, the Bible says your heart is going to become hard. And when David sinned with Bathsheba, he, he in bitter tears prayed and said, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me and don't let my heart get hard. And so for some people, by the time they get to their deathbed who've rejected Jesus their whole life, they have a hard heart and they will never, they'll never receive. And in the other parable, you remember the parable of the talents? What happened? The guy gave each some talents and the landowner went away. And when the landowner came back, what did he require from the landowners? He required that they did something with the talents he gave them. There was an expectation of God that, there was, that they used their lives for him. And, and, and you miss out. And, and these, these men who got the same grace, why did they not go to work earlier? Because they were lazy and they, they wanted to take advantage of the grace of God and wait till, their, till the 11th hour to go to work. Wait till their deathbed to get saved. 
No, because nobody gave him opportunity. It's a different class of people here. So don't take liberty with this thing to say, you know, and if that's you in here today and you haven't surrendered your heart and life to God or you're not really walking with the Lord because you feel like it's something you can do later, later is not promised to you. And there is a requirement and and it's based on opportunity. And if you've been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, your heart is also becoming hard. But here in this story, the big picture is still, I don't want to miss it, it's the amazing grace of God. God's grace is so amazing. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? I'm sorry, not the rich young ruler. We already talked about that. The, the, um, the son who was um, prodigal. If you don't know the story, I'll tell you quickly. Then we'll be done. The prodigal son went to his father and he said, Father, give me all that's mine. I want my inheritance. His father wasn't dead. So in essence, he was saying to his dad, I, hope, I wish you were dead so I could have all my stuff. It would have greatly complicated the state of the father because his stuff wasn't in cash and he didn't just go write a check and hand it to the boy. His wealth was in land and in, in stock and, and so he cashes out what he can, what belongs to his son and he gives his son all of his inheritance while his dad is still alive. And the boy goes out and he begins, the Bible says, to, to spend his money on loose living. You can fill in the blanks what loose living means. Hanging out at the bars and the clubs and buying drinks. The Bible says he was, he was supporting all of the, the party habits of his friends until he had no more money. And then all of his friends left him because they only stuck, stuck around because he was buying the drinks every night at the clubs. And then he was, he was destitute. And a good Jewish boy goes to a, a, a secular um, pagan landowner. And the landowner, just to stick it to him, knows he's a Jewish boy knows that he's kosher, knows he should have nothing to do with pigs. And the guy says, well, fine then, little Jewish boy. You want work? You can go, you can go work with the pigs if you want to insult him. And the young man goes out and he's working in the pig pens. And the Bible says he would have been grateful to fill his belly with the pods that the pigs ate. That's how destitute he was. And it says, finally, he, I love this Bible, this verse in the Bible. It says he came to his senses. And he said to himself, I'm going to go to my father. And he prepared this speech that I'll be like one of his hired hands. I realize he doesn't have to take me in as his son anymore. But at least in my father's house, I don't have to be in a pig pen and eat the pods that the the pig is. And he rehearsed this speech that he would go and ask his dad if he could just be one of his hired men. And the Bible says when his dad saw him afar off, there's only one way that the father saw him afar off. And that's if he was looking for him. And the father, no doubt, every day from some high perch or some place atop where he could see the road coming home would look and hope and pray every day that his son would come home. And that particular day, along that road, that dusty road, he saw that boy coming home. And as the boy approached, it says that he killed the fatted calf. And he took the best robe and he put it upon him. And he took, he took the signet ring and he put it upon his finger. And he fell on his neck and he kissed him and he loved him and he said... He said, that which was lost is found. And he rejoiced over that son. And that's, that's the heart of the father. Did that boy deserve it? What did that boy deserve when he came back? Not the amazing grace of the father. But what did he receive? This grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and love and mercy. That's the God we serve. God of love. God of grace. And then we have his, his brother in the story who is the same as these servants who were hired early. He has the same heart. Must be nice. Look at you, brother. And he said, Dad, I've, I've worked and I've labored for you every day. And you've never killed the fatted calf for me. And he was bitter and he was angry. And the story of the prodigal son is, is, is as much about the brother as it is about the prodigal son. And the father says to the son, he said, you, you're a son. You've always been a son. And all that I have is yours. In other words, you, you could have been partying with your friends all you wanted, any time you wanted to party with your friends. You, you could have killed a fatted cow every week if you wanted to. You're a son. You have liberty to party and enjoy life just like I've done for this boy. But instead, you've been trying to earn and work and please me with, with your work. And you've been so busy working for it that you've not enjoyed the grace, the amazing grace that, that, that is always extended to you as a son. And in the story, God, God's amazing grace is, is the victor. And, and, and so many times we're like that brother 
who, who, who were just mad because somebody else is rejoicing and enjoying the liberties in Christ. When God says, you're a son, you can enjoy them as well. You don't have to earn them because I'll give them freely. And I love you. And I want you to enjoy my amazing grace. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Hey, maybe there's a prodigal son in here this morning. And it's time to come home. Let's have the worship team come up, close us in a song. Um, and so as we sing this last song, I'm going to be up front. Lydia and I will be up front. If, if you're a prodigal son today and you want to come home, I want to encourage you to come up for prayer. You can do it in your seat where you are. Or you can come up. If you just need individual prayer, we'll be up front to pray for you. And if you need to get your heart and life right with the Lord, if there's weights or sins in your life, if God has been calling you and you've been like the, the one who just thinks tomorrow I'll get saved, tomorrow I'll get right, I'll do it on my deathbed. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And today's the day to get your life and your heart right with the Lord. Today's the day to stop running from God and just come to the Lord because God has promised you an abundant life in this life and in the one to come. God's not a killjoy. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And he wants to give you a life and that more abundantly. And I want to see every one of you experience that abundant life and joy in Jesus. I don't want you to be like the prodigal son. I don't want you to be like that young man who wasted a year and a half running from the Lord. And maybe you are. Maybe you're in that place. I've been there. You've been there. We've all been there at times. But today's the day that God's calling you home. I want you to, in your heart, just say yes to Jesus this morning. Say to Jesus this morning that it's time to come home and you want to come home and get right. If God spoke to you about that sin or that weight, lay it down at his feet today. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, I lay down blank, whatever that sin is in your life. I lay it down at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.